Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians from around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of experience among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Good morning, Jackie. It's a reasonable time in the morning. It's not even 7 a.m. <laughs> I still can't get used to you being in a different time zone. I know. Well, I was like, oh, man, this is quite the early record, but it's Friday, so I get to start my weekend that much sooner, I guess, is so we'll think oh, of that. Yes. <laughs> So this dish topic is much requested. Tell us about it. Yeah, when we did our call for what would you like to hear us talk about, we had someone ask about um, having us talk about career paths that are less typical or specifically requested something that is not orchestra and not higher ed teaching. What other options are there? And admittedly, uh, we could be better at and have upcoming plans to highlight guests and interviews with expertise in this particular area. So more to come on that. Uh, But Mm -hmm. you and I have some kind of unique thoughts about uh, this topic and how to go forward, even though we are both in higher ed. I think it's a really relevant Mm -hmm. topic, especially because we are training the next generation of musicians. And though I have belief in our institutions like orchestras and universities, I do believe they are going to change. I think there's going to be some immediate changes coming out of COVID. And then I think there's some long-term changes as we adapt and respond to a changing world and new financial landscape, reaching new people, being relevant to different audiences. Um, So this is something that you and I have actually talked about quite a bit in our friendship What are some things that come to mind when you think about a unique path in this career? Yeah, I think about this all the time because I teach oboe in South Mississippi. And normally when we think about a performance career, we think about, you know, going on to grad school in performance and then getting your doctorate and then getting a higher ed teaching job or being in a major metropolitan area at a major conservatory and auditioning for orchestral jobs. And those, as you said, those, the the landscape is changing. I 
have a hunch and who knows, it could be right. It could be wrong. But I believe that the future is interdisciplinary, mm-hmm. that there is a lot of opportunity in becoming you as a musician, but looking at yourself in a more holistic, well-rounded way and saying, yes, I am a bassoonist. Yes, I am an oboist. This is an integral part of my life. And I'm going to be the best artist that I possibly can. I am also very passionate about animal rights. I am also very passionate about my religion, my cultural identity, equity, social justice, teaching special education, mm-hmm. uh, merging your strengths so that you are not just a one dimensional person with one thing that you do. Because if I look critically at myself, that's kind of a pigeonhole that I've put myself in, in that I view my skills as pretty narrow. And I look at the skills and talents and diversity and um, interests of my students. And I'm just so inspired by all of the different things that they bring to the table. Some of them are excellent organizers. Some of them are excellent public speakers. Some of them are fantastic teachers. Some of them have passions about lots of different things that I had never thought of, like merging an interest with music and law. It's endless. And I I think there is value in looking at what you uniquely bring to the table and creating a job or creating a niche that only you can do. Mm-hmm. And it makes you irreplaceable. Yeah. You know, can you speak other languages? And are you a fantastic double read musician? You can merge those two things. Absolutely. And the future is yours. That's how I see it. Yeah. I mean, I I, I absolutely agree with everything that you're saying. And I love that you talk about looking at your students and what they bring to the table with amazement and uh, optimism Mm -hmm. that uh, it's not necessarily this doom and gloom situation that our field is changing. It's like, no, look at these young people and what they can do and everything they're going to bring to the field of oboe and bassoon playing. Yeah. And it's like, don't just look at what they can do in one narrow view, in one narrow scope. Look at what they can do as people. And you're just going to be like totally bowled over. Yeah. The kids are all right. And this is a conversation (laughs) I've been having uh, as we talk about in my job about theory curriculum and what pieces to teach. And I think for some people of our generations and older, it's really hard to wrap your mind around the idea of incorporating things from other genres. And that's something that I'm very passionate about is divesting from this concept of genre and dismantling genre. And something I'm very passionate about is teaching my students a Beethoven symphony is not more important than a Kendrick Lamar album and we have to stop this hierarchy of classical music is the best most important uh to quote titus underwood dope art is dope art and i don't think that our students and younger generations have hang-ups about this i think they can love symphony fantastique and they can love the new taylor swift 
album and it doesn't occur to them that that should or could be something that works at odds with each other they shouldn't be separated no and i think the field will be better because of that and i believe in a multi-genre approach to uh oboe and bassoon playing and that's something that really excites me that i'd love to see in the future some kind of sheroes to look to as you're contemplating this question. Some people who I really admire, and they don't know I'm about to shout them out, so I hope they're okay with it. Um, <laughs> if you go to Erin Off's YouTube channel, which yes. we can link to in the notes, but many of you are already familiar with, she is documenting a journey in which, in addition to her higher ed teaching job, she is apprenticing under Ken Potzik to become a bassoon repair person. Yes. And she has been kind of a, a techie tool gear head in terms of her bassoon playing. It, it has grown. Like you talked about, she pulled the thread on her interest and she is training on how to be a repair person. And it's so inspiring. And actually, if you go back to her middle videos, you can kind of even watch to present day this interest grow into something that she's pursuing as a career. And it's super exciting. It's super mm -hmm. exciting. Mm -hmm. And the other person who I would look at is Carol Lamore, mm. who actually had a fantastic higher ed job at the University of Missouri and looked inward and said, my passion is playing chamber music, which I think is as again, if we're talking about removing the hierarchy, chamber music is just as important as orchestral playing, you know, um, and even perhaps more adaptive to reaching different types of audiences. And more personalized. More personalized. Um, you can do more unique things. And WinSync is a great example. Acropolis oh ones are a great example. They're incredible. But Kara specifically in following her heart, which is essentially yeah. what it ended up going to is... Mm -hmm. um, putting her money where her mouth is in terms of uh, it doesn't have to be these two paths. This right. other thing is available to me right. and not ensconcing that in, well, plan A didn't work out. So I guess I'll look at these plan B options and being like, no, there are lots of plan A's. Yes. Take your pick. What's your flavor? Who are you? Who are you? And what do you yes. bring to the table and how can you give to your community? What does your community want? What does your community need? And how do you fit into that? Yeah. And we've just all spent the last year learning how to be more flexible and adaptive. And these mm -hmm. skills will only help us in the context of what we're talking about. As and well. then you can change your narrow definition of success of I am only successful if, if. this one specific thing happens to my life is successful because I lived it. Yes. Yes. Oh, girl. Ah, oh. girl. <laughs>Barton Kane offers a huge variety of GSP Kane. Leave the Kane processing to them. Use coupon code Double Read Dish Rocks My World for free shipping on your next Barton Kane order. www.bartonkane.com Founded by Logan Esterling, Read Design is pushing the boundaries of oboe and English horn read making. 
They take the knowledge they've collected from hundreds of reads and, with the power of machine learning, derive patterns and trends that accurately predict the characteristics of finished reads while early in the sorting process. The result is quality reads with characteristics you can count on. Using their products will save you valuable time and let you get back to what you love, making music. Visit www.readdesign.io to learn more. That's R-E-E-D-E-S-I-G-N dot I-O. We are so excited to welcome to the podcast, Assistant Professor of Bassoon at Columbus State University Schwab School of Music, Stephanie Patterson. Welcome to Double Read Dish. Hi, thank you for having me. Would you please tell us how you got started with the bassoon? Oh my goodness. So my musical journey sort of began like a lot of people's. Um, I was a third grader on the school bus and I sat next to a fourth grader who had a flute. Um, coming home from band class. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is that? I, w- I want to know everything. And she was like, oh, it's the best instrument ever. Um, you you should play the flute. You should go ask your mom if you can play the flute. So I went home and I was like, mom, I want to play the flute. She was like, in her brilliance, um, said you have to take a year of piano, then you can play the flute. So I did piano. I played flute. The natural progression, of course, is to saxophone, right, from flute. And then from saxophone in high school, my uh, band director was like, you know, you're really smart, you practice, I think you should try the bassoon. Um, freshman year, I was really shy, I didn't talk a whole lot, and he, he kind of said, you know, I, I think you should, you know, band directors want to switch people to bassoon, that's an oboe, right? That's what, what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I took it home, and he, he sent me with it, and he said, you know, if you don't like it, you can stop at any time. He, he said that like five times. He said, if you don't like it, <laughs> You're like, am I supposed to not like it? Right. Yeah. I, I kind of had that ex- expectation. I was like, wow, why is he saying this? Um, but, you know, I opened the case and I pulled out my like standards of excellence, you know, and I learned like a couple of notes and I played, there was like some arrangement of like the lullaby or something. And I just was, I was like, this instrument is amazing. It sounds so cool. And I actually ran upstairs to my parents and I was like, come listen to this. It's so cool. And they're like, we can hear you. <laughs> like you're in the same house as us. <laughs> so that was, that was kind of how I got started. The band director will like send me his Christmas card. The guy who, who recommended I, I switched to bassoon. Oh. His name is Rick, Rick Meyer. And I just, I just remember like he, you know, changed my course. And that was, that was really cool. Yeah. He could have left you to a fate as a saxophone player. Yeah. Or, you know, part of me wonders if that like saying, if you don't like it, you can, you can say no, like almost made me want to be like, no, I like it. I like, you know, like when somebody says like, it's okay if you don't like it, you know? So um, that was how I got started. So can you walk us down your path of like your training and educational journey and pursuing the bassoon professionally? So my, my story is like, I like to talk about how my story is how, you know, a bunch of doors like closed for what I thought I wanted to do in my life. And then I turned around and I saw the door that had opened, you know? So like, um, I, I tell this to students cause you know, doors are going to close in your face. Like it's the reality of life. Doors are going to close. So you have to be ready to look for that other opening. So my first audition was for a youth orchestra and I, I remember walking in and he gave me sight reading and what he gave me, I don't, I didn't know it at the time, but it was the um, solo from the end of the second movement of Chike 4, um, the bassoon solo, which is in tenor clef. 
and has like a bunch of flats, right? And I, I had been playing for like a year and I looked at this and I was like, tenor clef, what is that? Like, so I kind of fumbled my way through it and he put me on second bassoon, but I was the only bassoonist in the youth orchestra. <laughs> so like, that's my first like door, but like I sat down and I was like, oh, there's a chair there. <laughs> I'm second to no one. Yeah. Were you playing second bassoon to no first yeah. bassoon? <laughs> yes. You weren't playing first bassoon. No. <laughs> that is the most amazing thing I've ever heard. Oh, it gets better. I have more stories <laughs> like this. Um, I did though. It made me practice. So like that was the door that was because like it wasn't totally closed. He accepted me. You know, and I was like, oh, I need to practice, you know, because like, um, yeah, so <laughs> that's it. I need to practice. So I practiced and then somebody else did eventually audition and somehow I got moved up to first. And got <laughs> so was like, I was like, okay, all right, I'm doing something right. Um, yeah. <laughs> So then I, um, I applied to school. I didn't want to go to school for music. I applied to all these Ivy League colleges. I was like, I want to go study science or whatever. Um, and I got rejected from like my top five choices for college. Um, and my dad and I had this trip planned to like visit these schools. And when I got my letters, he was like, well, I guess we should cancel our plane ticket. <laughs> and so, um, but I got into Oberlin and I was like, this, okay, Ohio, yeah, all right, yeah, okay. So we went and visited Oberlin and I, um, I realized that at heart, I'm like a small town girl. Um, and I, I liked the campus and I liked the, um, kind of hippie scene. Um, and I saw some plays and some music there. And so I went to Oberlin as a non-major. Um, and my first, um, I actually, I auditioned to take lessons, um, with Nicolasa Custer, who became like a huge mentor of mine. And I auditioned for the college community wins, which is the like non-major band. Right. It's like for the students who are not music majors. <laughs> and I auditioned and I got fourth chair. <laughs> <laughs> were there uh, were there three other <laughs> Or it was like, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I sort of set that up, didn't I? <laughs> I cannot get that image out of my mind. <laughs> There were three other other businesses, um, and we were all non-majors, and it was super fun. And um, actually, one of them, I'm still in touch with her. She's an amazing person. She lives in in Bolivia, and she's doing like all this ecology stuff. But um, so so I was fourth chair, and I remember the the band director listening to my um, audition and saying, "You're doing jaw vibrato. That is not the right way to do vibrato." And I was like, "Oh, okay." And I this was like the beginning of my like true education and bassoon. So anyway, fast forward, um, I took lessons with Nick Custer for the semester, played fourth chair in the community wind band, or the college community wins. And, um, and she had done a similar thing where she had started not as a major and she had auditioned because she realized that music was what she wanted to do. Um, and I remember her saying to me, I, she said, I, I decided to do music and I love my life. And I just looked at her and I thought, like, I want to love my life and I love music, so maybe I should try this, you know, because I clearly I came here to study something else, but I'm doing all this music stuff. You know, I was in the the wind ensemble, I was taking lessons, I was trying to make reads, and I was taking like a music of Africa class as one of my um, electives. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna audition. Um, so George was actually on sabbatical, George Sakakini. And so I auditioned for him and I was so nervous. Um, 
and he he I, I don't know why but he accepted me and I became a music major and that was sort of when I started thinking I could you know become a, a professional musician and I mean I've always been like can I really do this you know like because I've looked at the field and I've looked at other people you know there's the stories of the people who like auction their bassoon off because they have to pay rent or the people who take a million auditions and are always like seconds or whatever and and just how disheartening it can be but um I just you know I thought you know if I just don't ever quit like maybe someday I can I can do this for me a big motivator um in my student days was the impulse of I'm behind I'm behind I'm behind I'm behind was it the same for you oh my gosh so huge like just coming in and realizing what I remember um, waiting outside of the bassoon door and listening to someone in a lesson. Um, and they were playing, I think, a mildew etude and they weren't making any mistakes. And I was like, because I was used to in high school, I would come in and sight read my, my lessons. I wasn't practicing, you know, like no, I could sight read not. it. So I yeah. would come in and I figured my teacher didn't know. And I found out later she knew. We always know, right? Like we have students, we know you're sight reading, okay? Just, it's not, it's obvious. So, but I, you know, I thought I was fooling her. Um, so I was listening and I was like, oh my gosh, they're still playing. They haven't made any mistakes yet. Like, and it sounds amazing. And so then, you know, the door opens and George Sakikini and his student come out. Um, and I said, this was actually, I was a prospective student I was visiting. And I said, you know, I'm interested in, in doing some music here. Do you have any suggestions? And he looked at me and he said, practice. That's all he said. I was thinking he was going to say like, get this book play these etudes, do the scale packet. No, he just said practice. And you know, if you know George, that's like classic, what he would say. And so I started to kind of practice more. <laughs> so after I auditioned and I became a music major, I was like, so behind. I was, it was insane. Like I remember auditioning for ensembles and I got put on like two pieces for the whole semester. One of them was like a doubling part and the other was like third to suit. I had like one note. It was one of those like you sit and you play your one note and you hope that you don't like screw it up and then you um, and you rest. And I remember talking to him about it later and he was like, yeah, you weren't really ready for ensembles yet. Um, but but yeah, that feeling was very motivating of like everybody here is amazing. I have to work twice as hard. And I just stuck my nose down and and put in the time. Yeah, I recall that sensation very clearly <laughs> I still you know it hasn't left in some yeah. ways like it's still part of who I am like mm -hmm. you know if you and and I think in, in some ways it will never go away like I'll always have that like I have to work harder because mm -hmm. I didn't start younger and practice more and mm -hmm. and that's okay I'm just gonna work harder mm -hmm. well and it, it ended up being so serendipitous like you could have ended up anywhere yeah. and that's not to say you know, a flower can't bloom anywhere, but you happened to yeah. be on Oberlin's campus For learning real. from Nick, <laughs> the direct pipeline to George. Like it's yeah. very serendipitous. That, oh, it's insane. And perhaps, I mean, if we're thinking really like woo woo, you know, the universe had to input in you, your gift is that I'll just put my nose down and I'll catch up. And if that's what it is, then that's what it is. But um, if that yeah. ended up being your special spice in a competitive field, then it all kind of worked out for the best. It was part of this big plan, you know? Um, but I wanna know what that looked like tangibly, like especially for a student listener or not student who's maybe just not quite where they want yet, 
what yeah. was that journey of putting the nose down and just catching up like and how did you get to where you are today well so i remember my first lesson with nick she said you got to work so hard you just have to practice like i think she said two hours a day and i was like oh that's it <laughs> okay i could do two hours but then it eventually became three or four you know on good days and she you know she had me doing the scales and the arpeggios and the repertoire but it, the work really started with george and so when he accepted me he gave me you know the mill the opus 24. he gave me the scale packet that his scale packet is a bunch of nine note scales thirds fourths and fifths some arpeggios long tones um and then three solos that you know the like standard uh, early classical um i don't even like kozaluch and uh, jc bach maybe um <clears throat> and this was for the summer he said learn this entire book right so learn mill the opus 24. Um, learn the scale packet and learn these three pieces. What I didn't tell him was that I was going off to be a raft guide in North Carolina for that summer. <laughs> so, so what I did was, you know, I would, I would raft all day <clears throat> until like 4 p.m. And then I was in this like shack and I would get my bassoon out and I would play my mildy and I, I figured it out. I was like, if I do one, uh, two of these a week for the whole summer um, and then I, I did the scales, you know, um, going, just going through them chronologically or not alphabetically scale scalar diatonically <laughs> from the beginning to on, the end <laughs> i started on page one and then i went to page two and then page three um and i did the pieces i you know did one the first third of the summer and the, so i tried to be really organized because i knew i only had like an hour or two of practice time and um i remember talking to one of the other raft guys and she was like oh i love your practicing i, I sit out back and i read and i listen to you and i'm like i'm playing scale studies <laughs> like <what> is... <laughs> but she would she enjoyed it you know and like i just made myself do it so that was sort of the beginning and then my freshman my true freshman year of music george said if you only play one thing every day it has to be the scale packet right you have to start with the long tones go through the arpeggios do all the scales the thirds fourths and fifths and all the articulations and i was like okay um so it would take me like 45 minutes and i would play that scale packet every single day and then i would and i would start at like 60 which was you know the da 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 you know like it feels painful but i made myself do it and then i would you know inch up the metronome and then I would get to my, you know, other, other work. But um, that was, I think the thing that really changed things for me was just playing that scale packet and making myself do it well and every day and just really working with the metronome and the tuner. He gave you technique. Yeah, it was, it was that. And it was that there were these people that would talk about this clarinetist who was from Russia and they were like, he's always playing his scales. I don't know what it is, but he was like the best clarinetist. And so I was like, well, if the best clarinetist is always playing his scales, then I'm going to always play my scales. I remember I would go to summer festivals later and I would be playing my scales and people would be like, why are you playing your scales? You've been playing scales for like 40 minutes. And I would say, isn't that what you do? Like it works. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's kind of what it, what it looked like. Um, and I just, you know, sometimes I would have to wake up really early to practice if I didn't have time during the day or I'd have to stay up really like close down the con at, at midnight when they kick you out and then I'd go home and do all my homework. Undergrad life. <laughs> Undergrad, right? Can you believe we did that? Oh man. No. These days. Makes yeah. me tired now. So what happened after that? Walk us through how you got to your position at Columbus State. Yeah. Well, so I, I have a few more doors that closed um, that I want to talk about. 
So for grad school, I also got rejected from my like top, you know, well, I won't say they were my top. I had like a bunch of, of um, equally weighted choices and I, I got rejected from a significant number of them. And then I, you know, I was making the decision between two schools with two amazing teachers. You might've heard of them, Nick Custer and Kristen Wolf Jensen. Um, and I, um, I did end up going and working with Nick some more in Wichita and playing in the Wichita Symphony. And at this point I thought, I'm going to be an orchestral player. This is what I want to do. Um, I'm going to work on my excerpts. I'm going to go win an audition. And I started to, you know, take auditions and realize like, okay, this is hard. I need to pay some bills and student loans. You know, I need to do some stuff. I need to make some money. So um, I'm going to look at other options. You know, I'm going to look at teaching. I'm going to look at, you know, other ways to, to do this music thing. And I think that is when I really started to pivot towards um, looking into academic versus orchestral playing because I, I started to feel like the orchestra was a really fun thing. But like, you know, we all look forward to those solos and we're like, yeah, I got I get to play the Bersu solo. I get to play the um, Scheherazade solo. And then like you play it. And then right afterwards, I just remember feeling like this, this like letdown after the solo was over. And I, I was thinking I should feel really great. Like I just played this great solo. It was super fun. But like, I remember being like, was it good enough? Did people mm -hmm. like it? Did I have enough in musicality? Was I in tune on that note? Like, did I crack something? Was I loud enough? How did it sound in the hall? Did anyone even notice that I was playing, you know? But when I would teach and I could like work with a student on something, they would, like I, I had that, that warm fuzzy <laughs> feeling, you know, like they got it, you know, like they were struggling and I helped them get something. And, and I think that sort of pivoted me um, and my professional goals. So, you know, I, I don't know when it, it wasn't like a, a sharp turn. It was kind of like a graduate, it was like a slow curve um, pivot. And um, after, after grad school, I spent, I took a year off and I went to Alaska where my husband did a, um, started a master's and I worked like part-time jobs, you know, um, and I, and I was thinking like, okay, if I, if I had to, I could work, you know, food service, I could work in a daycare for the rest of my life if to pay off my student loans if I don't get a music job. But I really want a music job. <laughs> like, I really want to do this. So I just started like, applying to um, teaching positions that I was not qualified for. Um, <laughs> and I think I learned, you know, um, oh, the CV has to be printed on nice paper, or, you know, you need to send a good quality recording, or you need to make keep your letter to one page or whatever. And um, after that year, I, I, um, I was like, you know, I'm not getting these jobs. It might be because, you know, I'm not ready. It could be that I don't have a doctorate. I think I'm going to look for another program, which is what brought me to Iowa, um, where I met Jackie, because she was doing her doctorate there and um, working with Benjamin Coelho. Um, but what's, what's kind of interesting is that I didn't I didn't immediately think like, oh, I'm going to go do a doctorate at Iowa. My husband was like, oh, I know the percussion teacher there. I'm going to see about going there to do my master's. And I was like, oh, yeah, the bassoon professor is awesome. I'm going to see if he, you know, would would talk to me about doing a doctorate. And like, I just and like somehow I just ended up going there. So I didn't get a chance to get rejected from all of my doctoral <laughs> program applications, <laughs> luckily. <laughs> But um, I think this was another serendipitous moment where it was like, I, I, I needed something and I found the right thing, you know, like I, I just some invisible hand, if we're being woo woo about it, guided me to um, 
to Iowa. And, and from there, I, um, taking a long time to get to how I got to my current position. <laughs> um, I got lucky because towards the end of my doctorate, the teacher who had come in halfway through my master's, I, I didn't tell this part of the story, but when I was doing my master's, Nick actually got her job at UOP in Stockton. So a new teacher came in, um, Scott Oaks, and he, while I was doing my doctorate, left his position and they needed someone like last minute. Like he left in the summer and they were like, we need a part-time bassoon teacher who is free. And he called me on the 4th of July. I remember this. I was like, who's calling me on the 4th of July? And he said, you know, would you be interested in this? And I was like, this is my experience. This is, you know, you got to get your foot in the door. This is amazing. Plus, you know, I would get to, to be in this great town again. Um, so I got the job in Wichita, totally being guided by the invisible hand again, probably. And I worked there for three years before I got my job here at Columbus State at the Schwab School of Music. Um, and, you know, I applied to a million academic jobs. And I took more auditions and I got rejected by so many of them. And every time I tried to look at my stuff and think, you know, how does it need to be better? I'd send it to people, say, what's wrong with this recording? What do I need to do? And I got great feedback. And sometimes it was really painful because they were like, don't send this recording. It's not good. Or, you know, your CV is a mess. Like you have to organize it or whatever. But every time I, I learned a little bit, even as it was like, you know, <laughs> digging the knife a little deeper. You're not good enough for this job. You're not good enough for this job. You know, so that's how I. I love the resilience and the growth mindset and the willingness to make yourself better, even though it hurts. It hurts so much. <laughs> it's, I think the thing that people don't say about resilience, like, yes, okay, resilience. But like, there's a moment before the resilience kicks in where you just have to hurt a little bit. Your you feelings know? are hurt all the time. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I remember getting a rejection letter from a summer festival that was printed on bright red paper. Oh, like, God. who does that? <laughs> it's like red is for no, yeah. like, green is for yes. Guess what? You didn't get in. <laughs> it screams of like they printed it off and then they went, oh, there was red paper in the copy machine. Oh, well. It doesn't matter. It's a rejection. <laughs> like, honestly, that's what it screams of. But I think, I mean, I can't go so far to say as we've all had those humiliating experiences, but I certainly have. And I know a lot of other people who have where you're just humiliated in the moment and you just have to smile and be like, all right. But I think that's the power in talking about it because it's so easy to believe you're the only person Mm -hmm. who has ever had that humiliating experience or who's experienced rejection and to compare to someone else's path and go, oh, what a straight path. They're perfect. They're yeah. perfect. Yeah. And if I don't follow that, will the door ever open for me? Or is there actually a single recipe that one must follow? And I started it just a little too late and went just a little too far off. Right. And what are the consequences of that? Because I feel like I'm the only one who experiences them. Right. That's why I love that you guys ask people what their, was it their most humiliating experience on stage? Oh yeah. That's the great equalizer, <laughs> man. It's like the best. We have gotten such amazing answers to that, that yeah. make us both like cry and blush. <laughs> and like, it's so funny. Yeah. I think it does happen to everyone. It must. It's just being human. Like we just cannot have it all. I think it's being a double read player. <laughs> Honestly. And Nick had it so right when she said, I love my life. I live a really happy life. Yeah. 
I'm paraphrasing, but you know, you have to, you have to go through (laughs) the fire to get to the other side where you actually get to live this life. Yeah. There's a, there's a great, um, there's some great children's literature about Pete the cat. Um, And there's a book about how he has white shoes and he steps in a bunch of stuff and they turn different colors. And the moral of the story at the end is no matter what you step in, just keep walking along and singing your song. (laughs) And I just love that. Brilliant. (laughs) I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about your enthusiasm for contemporary music and new music. Um, And as someone who knew you even in your student days, one thing that always comes to mind when I think of you and your playing is Stephanie is always going to have something new, but it's also going to be interesting. Like uh, if you want to know some cool rep that maybe isn't on your radar yet, go look at what Stephanie's programming. Uh, Oh, thank you. (laughs) And so I'd love to hear about kind of like where that interest started and um, just some of your experiences and approaches to contemporary music. Well, I want to start by saying that I didn't always love contemporary music. Um, I remember going to my first like contemporary music ensemble concert in undergrad. And I was like, I really want to like this music, but I don't know how to listen to it. I was just sitting in the audience thinking, what is going on on stage? I don't know what is like, I can't focus on the music. I don't even know what they were playing. So it, if you don't love it now, it's okay. Like maybe you haven't found the right kind yet or, or you haven't um, figured out how you listen to it yet. So um, I remember there was another bassoonist in my class um, at Oberlin who was really into new music. It was like her thing. She, she played in the new music ensemble and I saw her really like the fact that she really liked it and she was able to play it with like a really amazing musical um, approach. I don't, I don't keep in touch with her. Her name is Wendy Everett. She's amazing. She would play Bach the same way she would play like we're in. I was just so inspired by her. And I, I remember also playing in the, the wind ensemble with Tim Weiss and he gave us, you know, wind ensemble is like the younger group of students, generally speaking. And he gave us this crazy piece by um, Rao Tavara who is, has actually written a bassoon piece that I want to play. And there were multiphonics and there were sections where you have to just like loop something, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, because there were people in the group who were like, why are we doing this? I want to play Mozart. I want to play, you know, maybe Stravinsky. I want to play Debussy. And he was like, make it beautiful, okay? So we had these crazy multiphonics. People were like, my instrument can't do that or whatever, you know. Um, I, this fingering is not working. And he said, I don't care what fingering you play. I don't care if you get what's written on the page. Make it beautiful. Make it sound like something musical, not just a sound. And that I think that stuck with me as just because it's new music, it needs, it, it's not a license to make it be mechanical. It's not a license to just execute it and not put any musical feeling into it. It has to still speak to the audience. And especially working with composers, like they don't want you to play their pieces just make it like a computer would why would they have a performer play it if a computer could do it so so seeing you know what these composers were even if they were writing something that was atonal or based on a a a set a pitch class set or a 12 tone row they were putting emotion into the music and so it was my duty to put emotion into my performance of it um and i've played some 
stuff where you could look at it and you would say, there's no emotion in that. Are you kidding? It's all quarter tones and multiphonics and like computer noises. But like there, there is, you just have to find it. And uh, that's, that's been my approach is to find the beauty in it, find the connection to what the composer is trying to say. And if you can't find it, make it up. <laughs> You know, like, <laughs> like it's not, I, I had a student playing a piece this semester. I actually, this semester I made all my students play the pieces for the finals of the Meg Quigley competition um, that are by either women or people from the BIPOC community. Um, because I was like, you know what, first of all, it's COVID. We're not using piano as much. Second of all, you guys have to play this music. Like I, we're not doing Mozart this semester. We're doing something different. And um, they've kind of struggled, some of them. But for a lot of them, it was like the process of like, you have to figure out what this music is about and how to play it. You can't just play it the way everyone else on the recordings has played it because there are no recordings. There's, there's not like something to copy. Um, so that's, that's kind of been, that's my approach to new music. That's why I like it is because I can, I, somehow I feel like I can connect with it because it's from my generation you know i like to play a lot by people my age or younger than me or are our voices so i i feel like i can connect with that more than faber well and that objective is a form of musical resiliency mm -hmm. yeah this is a perfect time for you to plug your etude book an introduction to contemporary music for bassoon and 64 etudes tell us about that project yeah, well, I, I think that was sort of where I was coming from looking into my dissertation, because this was this project came out of my, my dissertation work. And I think a lot of us, you know, we look at that final project, and we think, oh, I have to research something, I have to go read a whole bunch of old books. And as, as opposed to creating something that will benefit the community, which is what I wanted to do. Um, and I know Jackie did a similar thing by creating a resource for people wanting to play music. And so I'm thinking of mine as like a resource for high school students wanting to play new music or maybe not wanting to play new music, but introducing it to them in a way that's not as crazy. You know, it's not like you're putting a piece in front of them that's got four pages of quarter tones. It's like, here's an introduction to why quarter tones are interesting and how they can help you with pitch. Um, because if you can hear that it's out of tune, then you can fix it and play it in tune. And then here's a short etude that's based on an actual melody that uses quarter tones. So the idea is that it becomes less scary and therefore more accessible and more people then can go play that music or write that music if they want to. So that's my book. I'm hoping to work on some, maybe some like duet versions of it someday. Oh, cool. Yeah, that would be cool in all my free time, you know? <laughs> well, speaking of free time, something yes. that's on all of our minds especially in the COVID era, is balancing everything that is on our plate. Can you talk to us about your approach to work-life balance and fitting in this artistry into a day-to-day -day reality? Yes, work-life balance. Um, that, that's, a, <laughs> that's a fun term that people use to refer to the way we all try and keep our spinning plates in the air, right? Like. <laughs> Like balance isn't really what I think of. Um, she scrambled. says she bursts into tears. <laughs> <laughs> Just put that emoji over my face. The cry. <laughs> um, so before COVID, I was struggling to balance a little bit. I, I think I had sort of some things worked out. Um, if you don't know me, I have two small children and the, the balance before was a little bit stressful. Um, 
and I've spoken about it and I've actually used it um, in my music to, I say used, used is a bad word. <laughs> I've, I've taken inspiration from <clears throat> the stress of my life in that I used to be like an over-preparer. Like I would, I would be like, I'm not ready to play this recital until I've played through every piece perfectly every day for like 15 days or something like that. You know, that's an extreme, but, um, and I think I got that from like, like Alex Klein used to say, if you're going to do a competition, right, you need to play the pieces three times every day and fix five things in each piece. And you do that for like four weeks before the competition and you'll win. Um, and so I sort of took that into my um, practicing routine, but like you get a job, you have a family, you have outside commitments, you're teaching a lot. Like you don't have time to practice everything that much. Like that's the reality. You better have practiced it in college because you're not going to get four hours to practice if you're, um, if you're a working musician, maybe if you get lucky. Um, but then, you know, throwing in COVID and having my kids at home all the time, my practice time has been whittled down to a very small sliver of time most days um, and not every day. So I've, I've sort of taken on this, you know, I just have to do it approach. And, and I actually think that's really good for me um, because I've discovered that I can do it. If I, if I'm like, I just have to do it. Like just my, <laughs> my parents used to say when I was a kid, Nike, just do it. Like if I was whining, I don't want to put my shoes on. I don't want to wear a jacket. Nike, just do it so much <laughs> that I actually thought they were, this was like an older thing, like not the brand with like the motto. I thought it was like a, like Nike actually meant like was Greek for just do it or something. Like I didn't make the connection. This is how crazy I am. But like, anyway, now I know that they were just referring to consumerism. Um, but <laughs> so like, that's, that has to be how we function now, you know, like, um, Oh, I have to make this this educational video for you know the GMEA etudes, and I've gotten 15 minutes to practice over the past four days. Well, <laughs> Nike, just do it. Like, just sit down and do it. And and actually, if you take that approach, it gives you a little more confidence of, yeah, I'm just gonna do it. I don't need to have the pillow or the the um, the safety net of I've practiced this a ton. Like, I worked really hard in a prior life or, you know, in college. And now I have to just, um, I don't want to say this, but I can't think of any other way to say it. I have to woman up is what I have to do. You know, I have to just. I say warrior up. Warrior up. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Okay. <laughs> Take two. You have to just warrior up and do it. So, <laughs> I, I know Jackie knows that I have um, publicly on stage commented on the fact that I having children and having to and playing the bassoon like there isn't really a balance you know and I've played pieces where I felt that struggle in the music and so I try to just embrace that struggle and embrace the fact that I'm not as prepared today as I want to be but I can express that and I can say this is where I am right now and I can still play something that connects with you even if it's not like the shiniest most polished piece of quartz or whatever quartz you don't shine quartz what do you shine gold silver it's silver. not the shiniest it's not the shiniest piece of silver it's um you know what i mean like you yeah. just embrace the struggle we're all struggling it's covid like our students are struggling we're struggling our orchestras are struggling like even before covid we were all struggling I mean, it's kind of true. 
Yeah. It's kind of true. Yeah. Well, that kind of brings a couple questions to mind, but you know, my first thought is, does that impact for the better your like any sense of performance anxiety? Like if you have to just kind of let go and be at peace with the way things are, it's essentially the mindset that we're trying to get to with performance anxiety. But mixed in with that, you know, the per performance I did see at the last Meg Quigley symposium where you did refer to balancing motherhood and, and feeling like you wanted to be in two places at once and and no mm -hmm. matter where you are, something else is beckoning was perhaps the most impactful for you know, you're kind of ensconcing it in the things that it perhaps wasn't and having to be okay with with <laughs> the level of preparation. But in the process of embracing that and bringing a humanity to it, it ended up being the performance that was the most meaningful to this group of people. And I remember telling a third person about experiencing your performance and them tearing up, someone who was not in the audience, but talking about the level of vulnerability and the way that you framed it. And so it's funny, like what we perceive as a loss can, can actually be a significant gain. That's not a question, but if you want to respond to it, I will. <laughs> That's a very interesting question, Jackie. <laughs> No, I mean, th th I'm glad that it, I'm glad that it resonated. I'm not getting joy that it made people cry, but I am glad that it resonated with, with people because it was like, I remember sitting backstage thinking, I am not sure what's going to happen. And I am scared. Like I was, I was legitimately scared. I was, I was thinking, you know, I've thought of all these things to say, you know, speaking from the stage is a big part of the Meg Quigley organization. I wanted to model that for the young women in the competition. But I also remember thinking like, I'm sharing a stage with, you know, Judy Farmer and Ben Kamins and Richard Bean and Andrew Brady and Jackie Wilson and Kristen Wolf Jensen. <laughs> no, but for real, like, and Eric Varner, right. you know, and it, this, and I was like, I feel like, you know, that, that feeling of coming from behind and, I was just, I was thinking, you know, this is what I have to offer. And I think they are going to respect, they're going to appreciate my honesty. And um, I kind of teared up a little bit on stage. And I love those moments. I hate those moments, but I love those moments because it's so real and it's why we do this, but it's also so scary. Like, yeah, it's really difficult. It's really yeah. difficult to it is. to be a vulnerable human being when you're on a stage in that imbalanced social structure of you being on the stage and the audience being in the audience. Yeah. Because all we want to do is protect ourselves. But I, th I mean, it felt really safe in that place. Like I was thinking, if I'm going to say this somewhere and feel the community of support, this is where I'm going to say it, you mm -hmm. know? And so... And, and the audience helped me, like they weren't, while I was talking, they weren't like talking or clapping or anything, but I could hear people responding, you know, like um, I've had a similar situation playing the Steinmetz Sonata for people. And if you preface it with the right statements and people are in the right mindset, you can hear the reaction because it's a human um, thing. And it, it's, you know, there's, those moments are amazing. I have those moments every time I play a piece by Sofia Gubaidolina. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, doing this over the past four years, perhaps the one through line 
that is very clear is that people are not interested in here on both instruments in hearing the same 10 excerpts played the exact same way anymore and no one considers no. that music and it's a frustration that everyone shares but it can be this like objective like yeah. this thing we're trying to achieve you know and yeah. the the thing we can often think of the brass ring is the thing that everyone is unilaterally over not interested in and wanting to move on from and it's so interesting this even in 2020 this idea of unpacking ideas and not even realizing you know what's in, ingrained in us god yeah. we're getting we're getting deep with stephanie real patterson deep. today real deep <laughs> you know what's funny though i actually really like practicing excerpts <laughs> is that weird like i really no. Give me some Mozart, give me some Figaro, give me some Scheherazade. I will just sit there and drill it because there's something. The other side of me that I didn't mention is that I grew up like an athlete, you know, like doing cross country and swimming. I love doing drills, you mm -hmm. know, like scales, arpeggios, excerpts. It's like a little drill. It's like a little mini drill and it's great music. Do I want to perform it though for the rest of my life? Eh, maybe it's just a drill to play you know right. I think that's a great point Jackie that like it's not what we want to listen to maybe what is your advice for young people who aspire to have a career like yours I think one of the biggest struggles right now is the the keeping the motivation to work hard even when you know the doors are closing even when you're stuck inside your house even when all your lessons are on zoom even when your ensembles can't meet, like keeping that motivation. So my advice is figure out why you do it. You know, like you have to have a reason. It can't just be because you, um, you know, because you think you should, because you know that other person's doing it, because you'll make millions of dollars and be famous. <laughs> but like have a really, an important reason to you that you do the music that you play the music because if you have that reason you know like I play the bassoon because I really enjoy playing the bassoon so like during COVID when I don't have something to practice for sometimes I would just take the bassoon out and play it and I would realize that it was like soothing to me and it made me feel better and even if I didn't get a job in music and I was working at a bank I could get that feeling from the music and it's because I like it for that reason so like for someone who is wanting a career in music don't just go for like the brass ring or the career, figure out what it is, like the reason you do it, find that joy and then find ways to get that joy, you know? Cause otherwise you're just gonna be playing music and maybe you'll get the best job ever, but you'll still just be like, why are you doing it? You know, you gotta have that internal reason to do it. Stephanie, this has been such a wonderful conversation. We cannot thank you enough for talking so with us fun. today. <laughs> for asking me this was so much fun thank you so much for joining us for that episode i mean were we right that interview with stephanie patterson phenomenal i'm still laughing <laughs> <laughs> Do not forget to rate and review on iTunes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up on social media. We'd love to hear from you, Galit, who's coming up on our next episode. Our next episode, we speak to the wonderful John D, Professor of Oboe at the University of Illinois. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Go make reads. <laughs>